Father, thanks for the great privilege um, to be together to talk about something that I know is really close to your heart. And that is what it means to be a dad. And so would you by just would you just convict us? Would you lead us? Um, Father, and would you help us in turn to lead our families? And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I'm not going to, too big a group to get feedback, but uh, did a bunch of you guys do Deuteronomy 6 with your wives? Sit down. If you did, raise your hands. Okay, way to go. If you didn't, it's not too late. Okay, sit down and talk to your wives about week one, which is, hey, commit. This is how we want to lead our family. We want to lead our family according to how Deuteronomy 6 talks about that today, we are going to talk about how you lead your family. And really, one word uh, kind of describes how you do that. And there's a lot of aspects to leading your family, for sure. But the thing we're going to focus on today is authenticity. What that means. How do you lead your family authentically. And then next week, we're going to talk about how do you train the heart of your kids. So many of us kind of get moved into this deal where we want to shape the outside of our kids. We want to shape their moral behavior, but we forget to train their heart. And so Wags is going to come next week. He's as good as anybody I know at just helping his kids understand the why of following Deuteronomy 6. So we're going to kind of, that's kind of the plan for the next next couple of weeks. And so last week I gave you guys a couple of parenting truths, okay? And each week I'm going to give you a couple of those. And so last week we talked about it's never too late, okay, to be a dad and to be a good dad, to ask for forgiveness from your kids and say, hey, I want to do better. It's never too late. And truth number two was that God's grace covers a multitude of parenting mistakes, Right, We blow it all the time as parents, and God's grace covers that. Another thing I mentioned last week was uh, the most important thing that your kids can see is your own spiritual transformation. Really important that they see mom and dad look different three months from now than they look right now. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Solomon's life, and then Kirk's going to come up, Kirk McJunkin's going to come up, and he's just going to talk about how he's learned authenticity and how he's learned how to do that in front of his family. And so that's kind of the plan for today. So here you go. Here's the convicting truths that kind of shape our week this week. Okay, number one, your kids will get your junk. Okay, so if you have idols, addictions, things in your life that you don't deal with, your kids are going to get that stuff. And that's a sobering reality. But I see it all the time. You probably do, too. And I, one of my struggles is I'm a people pleaser, man. I want people to think I'm really good at what I do. And I want people to think that I'm a good guy and all that kind of stuff. And, and I perform at times for people. And so I look at my girls, and I see that performance, people-pleasing thing. And I'm just like, oh, man, they're getting my stuff, right? And so I just want you to know that's one of the principles that if we don't deal with our stuff, our kids are going to get it. And here's the second one. Your kids will do what you do, not what you say. They will do what you do, not what you say. And so modeling 
being authentic in front of your kids is really, really important. So we're going to spend time today talking about, hey, what are the things, and hopefully in small group, we're going to talk about what are the things in our lives that 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 just are our idols. And so I'll tell you what mine is right now. I, I have all kinds, right? And, and they kind of switch from time to time. So right now, my youngest daughter, Kendall, is a really good soccer player. Okay, and she has made a team that is probably one of the top 25 teams in the country. So they're competing. There's about 50 or 60 teams across the country that are competing for a national championship. And I, I had the privilege of playing Division One baseball, and I love the good competition. I love all that kind of stuff. I've missed it, you know, all these years since I've been done. And so I find myself trying to, you know, trying to, yeah, just I'm too... <laughs> I'm too invasive in my kid's life, right? And so it is such a struggle for me when she's got a little ache or a pain. I'm like, push through it. You know, my heart's saying, push through it. Suck it up. You can do it. you got to be at practice, right? All that kind of stuff. And so and so I come home and I look at websites and where we rank today and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, man, that can so easily become an idol for me, right? Is that I just look back and an hour later I've spent... A, you know, I spent time on the internet. I said, how are we doing? What are you, you know, what everybody's saying about our team. There's a forum out there you can read, and they say the Kegler kid stinks, sucks, is terrible. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? And I'm reading that crap. And so I just find my heart at times getting wrapped around that, and it gets transferred to our kids. And so, that, so that's, that's a struggle for me. So what I want to do, man, the Scripture always goes to the core, right? And so if you did the study this week in Solomon... That's what happened to Solomon. So we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures and looking at uh, what happened to Solomon because he didn't deal with his idols. And so in First Kings, part of the homework was in First Kings chapter 3, uh, 3 through 14, you guys read about Solomon's early years in his life. And so Solomon basically said, hey, God said, hey, what, what do you want? And instead of asking for riches, instead of asking for the defeat of his enemies, Solomon asked for, hey, Lord, I need the wisdom to run this incredible kingdom that you gave to my father, David. Okay, would you give me wisdom to do that? And God was so pleased with that prayer request that he said, not only am I going to give you more wisdom than anybody's ever had in the history of civilization, but I'm also going to give you riches and those other things that you didn't ask for. And so if you go on to 1 Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple, okay, you see Solomon's, if you have not read that passage, Solomon's incredible prayer for the dedication of the temple, that God would fill that temple, and then how he leads, his, how he prays and leads for his people, it's incredible. And you just get this picture that Solomon's heart is so for God. I mean, he's just sold out. Everything he's thinking about, everything he's doing, his heart is sold out for God. And then you go on to 1 Kings chapter 10, 14, and it goes through... Chapter uh, 11, verse 11, and you see all the accumulations. Did you guys read the accumulations? It's unbelievable. Every three years, all these ships come back with all this gold. The boy, right, our dream, right? 700 concubines and 300 wives. Cha-ching! Right? I mean, it's like we all have these fantasies about how great would that be? Every night, a different girl and all that kind of stuff, Right? And so he's got all this stuff going on. So he's got unbelievable wealth. You got the throne, right? 
they sneak and covered up the ivory with the gold, right? The throne is ivory, and they cover it up with gold. I mean, that's what was going on, okay? And then everything changes. And so if you will look at this passage right here at the end, oh, I'm on this side, sorry, right here. Uh, let's go back to the First Kings passage, if you would, Ryan. There you go. First Kings 11, 9 through 11. For the Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's commands. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and disobeyed my laws, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. And so Solomon's heart on fire, right, for the Lord, on fire. And then all of a sudden these things, all the wives, all the concubines, all the riches, and it specifically talks about horses from Egypt as well, that he went back and he made a covenant with Egypt, okay, that the Lord had specifically told him not to do. And so... My favorite Bible study I've probably I've ever done in my life was I was reading through this story of Solomon. This is a couple of years ago, and I was reading all this, and there was this little cross-reference, okay, in Deuteronomy 17. And so I didn't have any idea what was going on in that, and so I just flipped back to Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, and I read this, and I mean, it pierced me like crazy. Because I do, I mean, I have these idols in my life. Solomon has these idols in his life. And the three things they talk about in the first Kings passage is women, horses from Egypt, and riches, right? And look what happens. Remember last week we were in Deuteronomy, and this is where Moses has his final shot at the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he's saying, hey, I want to help you set up a civilization in this new place where you're going. Here's some of the instructions. You're about to enter the, the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think, hey, we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select this king, the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. Hang on to your hat. Moses, years before Solomon. Okay? The king must not build up large stable of horses for himself. Or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Number two, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Number three, and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. So Moses says, hey, you're going to want a king one day. But let me give you three specific warnings. If he's going to be a king, he doesn't need to do these three things. And what does Solomon do? We just read it in 1 Kings 10 and 11. Horses from Egypt, women, riches. And God says, I will tear the kingdom away from you. And that's what happened. And we all know the story. If you read the Old Testament, the rest of the kings that came after Solomon, for the most part, were terrible kings. Horrible kings did not love and shepherd the people the way they were supposed to. It keeps going. Here we go. Moses was smart enough, or the Lord through Moses was smart enough to give him not the what you must not. So he gave him, hey, don't do this. But he also said, do this. 
when this king is who he is, when this king sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, 19. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. Keep the scroll, God's commands, in front of you. Copy it in front of Levitical priests and read it every day. That way he will learn to fear the Lord as God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. And so, fellows, as dads, there it is for us. We are tempted to follow all kinds of things, just like Solomon was. Pick your, pick your addiction. Pick your idol. Whatever it is, but that, that's our temptation. We all have that stuff. And so if we don't deal with that stuff that's in our own lives, we are going to pass that on to our kids. And so I want to take just another couple of minutes before we turn it over to Kirk, and I just want to go through just four things that will help you as you jump in your small group or you talk to your community group or you get a chance to talk to your wife, whatever that is. It's just a way to begin to think through how do I authentically lead my family so that I don't pass on this mess that is in my own heart. And so the first thing is that you have got to identify what those idols are, kind of understand them, and repent. And repentance means you just turn 180 degrees. And folks, I repent from soccer websites a lot, okay? But it's something that captures my heart. Tim Keller does a great thing he, every day. So instead of just as he spends time with the Lord, kind of a focused time in the morning and in the evening. But during his day, he keeps a little card at his desk. Looks something like this. I keep this at my desk. And it says, where have I gotten proud today? Where have I gotten cold? Where am I cold hearted towards Things that I don't care about. Where am I scared? What's fear keeping me from doing? And where have I gotten hooked? What has captured my heart? And those are the four things, questions he kind of asks himself throughout the day. So this happens often a lot and it kind of moves and shifts of things that capture our attention in places where we try and find life. So identify those idols and understand them and repent from them. Secondly, make them public. We say around here, A lot. The heart that tells is the heart that's well. And I'm just not saying get up on stage in front of 500 guys and tell everybody what your crap is. Okay? What I am saying is find some trusted guys that you can talk about what's the stuff that's going on in your life that nobody knows about. And I know with a room this big, there's a ton of guys here that have stuff. Okay? Whether it's pornography, whether it's an emotional affair, whatever it is, there's stuff going on. And I just want to tell you, Guys, your kids are going to get those things, okay, if you, if you don't deal with that stuff. So if you've got secrets, if you've got mysteries in your life, when you repent of those and tell other people, the power and the mystery goes out of those things. Okay, and so Trisha and I have this funny little story we do in, in premarital counseling, counseling as we sit there with these uh, little 23-year-old couples that just came out of, you know, just graduated from college, you know, and we sit down and one of the first things we say is, I just want you to understand this young lady 
can have an affair on you. And sweetie, this young man can have an affair on you. And they don't believe it. Right? All is great. Just graduated from college. Let's go do this. And I'm like, if you let secrets and mysteries between the two of you guys happen, that's, that's likely to happen. And Trish and I have this deal. So one of the things we tell couples is, hey, if, you're, if you've got a crush on somebody, okay, you need to let the other person know or figure out how to handle that. Let me tell you my story. Um, one, one of my closest friends, guy that's a spiritual dad to me, was on a plane um, going from Dallas to Tulsa, Southwest Airlines flight, not very full, okay? And stewardess, flight attendant, sorry, sits down right next to him. And so they have a 30-minute conversation, and my buddy just feels this real connection with this gal. He's got a great marriage. Okay, godly, godly man, but he just feels this real connection with this flight attendant. And so as he gets off the plane, you know, he doesn't take a number. He doesn't do anything like that. But as he gets off the plane, he finds his, in his head and his heart kind of wrapped around that conversation. Hey, she kind of liked me. She kind of thought I was cute and she respects what I do and all that kind of stuff. And so he wrestled with that for a while. But he and his wife had this deal that, hey, I'm going to come home and I'm going to tell you when I have a crush on somebody. So he comes home and he says, hey, I just want to tell you what happened. Okay, my heart connected with this flight attendant, and I just want to confess that to you and let you know that's what happened. Now, some of you guys are thinking, eh, 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 no way I'm doing that. Okay, and so Trish and I, when we heard that story, we said, okay, let's figure out how we want to do that. So Trisha said, I don't want to know. Okay, that's what she said. Okay, but, but what she did say, but I want to make sure your boys know. Okay, and if it gets to a place where it, it really does capture your heart and gets over the top, I do want you to come tell me, and I want your guys to be with you, okay, when they come tell me. So we kind of work that deal out, but those things capture our hearts, and so we have got to tell people the secrets that are in our lives. Third thing, let life in Christ overwhelm the idols in your life. And we're right back to Deuteronomy 17. God's Word daily, meditating, memorizing, talking about with other guys. God's Word, exactly what Moses was saying about the future king of Israel. Be in God's Word daily, and it will overwhelm those idols. Last thing you want to do is you want to include your family at the appropriate age in your struggles. Okay, and so there is an appropriate age to do this, but I'll tell you, most of us in this room struggle with lust. And so at, at an appropriate age, after I'd had all the right conversations with my girls about how boys like to look at girls' bodies, okay, which freaked them out, right, at a certain age, I, I just, they started to connect, hey, that's, that's not healthy for my dad whenever a Victoria's Secret commercial comes on the TV. So at our house, all the time, one of those commercials comes on or something, my girls will just get over to the side and do a little dance and try to get me to try to get me to look over there, or they'll close the armoire where the TV is or something like that. But they get it. They know that's a struggle for me, and so they are helping dad, okay, with his idols. Okay, they're a part of the process. So I'm not saying at an inappropriate age, but when it's appropriate and your kids are old enough to handle it. Let your family in on what's happening and let them be a part. Because you know what my girls know now? Okay? 
guys really struggle with looking at our bodies, all of a sudden modesty starts to make sense, right? The clothes that they wear. Okay, all of a sudden how, I, how flirtatious I am around guys starts to make sense to them. Okay, because they're in on this and they know dad really struggles. Okay, and they see other guys struggling and they know it and they're a part of it and they get the way the world works because you've let them in on your stuff. And so God's word, community, time with Christ includes your family. Folks, we say it every week at Watermark. Believe, belong, be trained, be strong. Right? That those are God's means of grace to deal with the idols in our life. And if you don't, okay, you're going to pass your junk onto your kids because your kids are going to do what you do, not what you say. Today, the homework, okay, get ready. Okay, if you've looked ahead, okay, what you have in week two, you're, so first week, Deuteronomy 6, Okay, was the thing you were supposed to go do, and then you had homework for this week, okay? You're to do for this week, in your binders, there are surveys. A wife survey and a kid survey. Okay, I've done this for the last seven, eight, nine years with my family every year. And I just hand them these surveys, get ready for an ouch, okay, and hand it to them. And just say, hey, honey... Tell me how I'm doing in these areas. I won't get angry. I won't get frustrated. I just want you to be as honest as you can and tell me how I'm doing. Give them to your kids. Let your kids tell you how you're doing as a dad. Now, a lot of you guys in here have really young kids. And so have mom, even when they're two or three years old, have mom work through some of the questions with the kids. You're going to get, don't spank me. Okay, that's one of the things you're going to get. I hate it when dad spanks me. It's okay. Okay, you're going to get some stuff that doesn't help you. All right. But get in the habit of having conversations with your kids about how am I doing? How am I doing as a dad? How am I doing as a husband? And the goal of this is to begin to get those conversations on the table because we don't talk about the stuff that much. And so that's the homework, and then the rest of the homework is get ready for next week, which is Proverbs chapter 2, which that's all self-explanatory in there. So that's the plan. All right, I have the great privilege uh, to introduce a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, Kirk McJunkin's been a friend for a long time. Um, just to give you a little bit of uh, a bio on him, born in Dallas, graduated from Lake Highlands High School in 79, uh, went to UT, was all Southwest Conference football player at UT, was drafted by the Steelers, played for the Steelers for a year, and then was injured, and the pro career kind of ended. Um, and then he's been in the construction business for 27 years. I love him. I don't care about that stuff. It's cool, okay, about I love that the dude played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's awesome, okay? But can I tell you the stuff that matters about Kirk McJunkin? Here's the bio that I wrote down. The guy's deeply in love with the Lord. He's given his life away to serve the Lord. Great dad. He's going to tell you about his stuff, okay, his idols. But he's a great dad. He's a great husband. He coaches kids all the time. Pick your sport. Not because he wants to coach football or basketball or baseball or whatever that is, because he wants to build into the lives of young men. 
And he was one of the founding families at Watermark where he and I and our family and his family got to be really good friends. The guy's given his life away. But the reason Kirk's here today is he's going, he's going to talk about his stuff. Right? Here's what's going on. So Kirk's going to come up, tell you his story, and then we'll break for small groups. Kirk McJunker. I think I thought I knew what tough was till I read how many wives Solomon has. <laughs> I've got one. <laughs> I said to the Lord in a description of what I wanted in a wife years ago, and I thought to one guy, I'm not a poet, and you'll get the picture real quick here when you hear my illustration. One of the descriptions I use is I wanted a wife that would go from the east to Texas in the 1870s and sit in the back of a trailer or a wagon and be able to handle a rifle. And uh, kind of made him smile a little bit and... Last night, about 11 o'clock, I'm working on this stuff. I didn't like the way some of the, the uh, segues were working in my presentation, and I was bothered by it. And about that time, I hear just bloody, bloodthirsty scream coming out of the back of the house. I jump up from the computer, and Bert comes, my youngest son, comes running out of the back room. And I said, son, grab your phone. Go around the front. Stay close. Watch the bridge. I'm going to the back. So I'm, I'm kind of a make-believe military law enforcement wannabe. <laughs> I jump out of the back and I start hugging, the, hugging the, the house, working my way around, thinking if this is whatever this is after my wife, I'd like to see them before they see me in case I have an, a chance to surprise them, get to them. And I'd had an air rifle that I have that has a velocity of about a 22 for a few feet. And... Uh, <laughs> I grabbed it, and I was ready to go. I was going to put something right behind the ear if they were grabbing my wife. And, and so I look down the hill. My wife's coming up from kind of a creek all disheveled. And I can't figure you know, sweetie, what's going on? I realize there's nothing there. And she, a coyote had grabbed her dog, and it was shaking her dog and about to kill it. And my wife jumped up and ran down that hill after that coyote and dove at that coyote and was going to get that coyote and get that... <laughs> So I couldn't handle 300 wives. I've just got one. (laughs) There's a passage of Scripture that, while not a real struggle to understand, is challenging to apply. It has been one of the most life-changing for me, that being Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Also translated, one man sharpens his friend. From this I know that people mature and become set apart or holy by way of interaction with one another. Charles Ryrie, famous for the Ryrie Study Bible, comments that social contacts have a stimulating effect on the mind and personality. And though I experienced this in my own life with peers, God used my teammates in college to expose my irritating habits and flaws that separated me from the quality of relationship I desperately desired. He also used others to expose my idols and open my eyes and heart to reality that has been radically affected my leadership and quality of life. And he did it with those whom he's trusted me to lead, that being my wife and kids. Though loved by well-meaning parents, I grew up in a performance-based home, which also came with a sufficient supply of invalidation, relational detachment, and disrespect. You see, in my home, emotions weren't valid. You were told at times what you should and shouldn't feel. 
You could have an emotion actually corrected. A perspective was corrected. You spoke at versus with. Parents tried to fix everything from problems to emotions, even my thoughts. It was at the receiving end of a lot of anger and frustration. The result was an increasingly distant relationship with my father, which led me to manage our relationship and minimize interaction out of self-protection. What I didn't know is that what I was protecting would eventually grow into my idol, the idol of affirmation and people-pleasing. And life in my family of origin taught me to seek affirmation and respect through performance and primarily athletic performance. Over time, seeking affirmation and people-pleasing morphed into me idolizing an image of how I wanted to be perceived and respected by others, and primarily my wife and kids. By the time my oldest of four was eight, eight to ten, somewhere in there, I was trying to manage what the kids saw and heard in their dad. It was as though I was living out a character created by me with the hopes that this character dad would be perfect and therefore raise perfect kids who would treat the character dad with respect. This lasted till my oldest was eight to ten years old and rolled his eyes at me at the dinner table one night. I talked a lot about respect with our kids, and eye-rolling was at the top of the nonverbal list of disrespectful actions. I angrily jerked him from behind the table, lifted him off the ground. I swung him into the kitchen away from the table. My wife jumped up. Remember what I told you about her? (laughs) Grabbed me by the shoulders, appropriately getting my attention. Telling me I was out of control, the incident stopped right there. There I stood, angry, scared, scared son, and three other sets of eyes staring in amazement at their dad. The son's eyes were full of tears, and he was full of fear. The image drove deep in my soul and reminded me of years of invalidation, angry interactions with my own father. Later that night, I went to his room to ask for forgiveness and express my deep sorrow. During our conversation, after I'd had asked for forgiveness, I was struggling to get him to engage. He was a very obedient kid, and his responses um, were, were punching the card. But my idle gland was swelling up, and I needed affirmation. I was restored so I could be restored back to the ideal dad. I'd asked several times in different ways if he'd open up and how he felt. When he finally did, I backed it up well. Well, if you hadn't rolled your eyes, Daddy wouldn't have gotten mad, and though I was out of line, you know how the rest of it goes. In essence, I had blamed him for my behavior. He grew painfully silent and back to the obedient son answers, which communicate, I'll give him, Dad, what he wants, so maybe he'll go away. I pressed on why he wouldn't open up. He responded, eyes filling up with tears, in a broken voice. And he says, because you tell me why I'm wrong, how you're right, and why I'm responsible for your anger. He's about 10 years old. Not only that, it made me angry. Holy Spirit had a grip on my mind and my heart. And all I could think was, you're right. You are right. 
I asked for forgiveness and told him that from now on when we talk and I ask you what's up with your heart, it is to be considered safe. Safe means you share your heart. There are no right or wrong answers or opinions. And that Dad wants to know what you're feeling and thinking it would mean that I would listen with the intent to understand before I would try to communicate any corrective truth or biblical advice. Returning to bed, I began to think and meditate on what I, on what I would do, knowing that I had just repeated a scene not too dissimilar from what I had vowed to never do with my kids or my wife, that being to physically touch or control with force or intimidation. Though, I'd had, though I had and still have lots of work to do with managing anger. And by God's grace, there's victory and ground taken over the years. God has shown me many idols which I have come to hold tight, forgetting there is no life in these apart from my identity in Christ. And all those things I'd listed to you before about my own dad speaking at instead of with and correcting emotions, I, I, was, I was into that pattern with my own kids. I was doing what I had witnessed my whole life. After a lot of prayer and counsel with my wife, I was convinced that If my wife and kids were to follow my leadership, then I must earn their respect before they would trust me. With the hope that they'd follow me out of desire versus authority or fear. Relating to my past experience, it was clear that I would gladly have followed my dad if he had done a better job connecting and understanding my heart versus measuring performance in grades, sports, social acceptance, and displays of respect for him. By this time, two of our four kids had repeated similar words and shown similar patterns as my oldest, which is managing their interactions, verbal card punching, I call it, demonstrating too much difficulty to share their heart and mind. Their goal was not to be their friend, hoping to relate on a childish level, instead to open their heart and mind like they were talking to someone they implicitly trust. The word picture is similar to the trust demonstrated when your child, for those of you that have kids, leaps from the bank of a pool into your arms. For those of you who ever raised kids, there's probably a time in your life whether it was getting on a horse, off a horse, or jumping from something or climbing something, when you're there to say, I got you, trust me. I'm not going to let you get hurt. There's a transfer of trust that goes on when a child looks around and, and does not see the danger, but just sees the arms of their father. The best word picture was just jumping from the pool, ignoring all the fear. They perceive the danger, but they trust their dad to protect them more. It's a transfer of trust. That's what I was after. So how to handle the idols? I had to sacrifice the image of the perfect dad, seeking affirmation and people-pleasing. And be authentic about needed life change from whom I would allow the Lord, and, and from whom I would allow the Lord to speak into my life. Also, I had to sacrifice the idol of identity in worldly respect, as gained by position and authority. As long as I pursued identity and self-worth outside of Christ, I would continue to fall back into old patterns, expecting and demanding respect, which pumped life into the perfect dad. The more I moved off away from Christ and fixing my eyes there, the more I would fall back into the old patterns and try to re-erect perfect dad. Perfect dad was prideful and put relational distance between his wife and kids. Anger moves back on the scene with increased regularity and takes down the relational trust built through validation and authenticity. Respect would start with earning their trust through validation and encouragement. 
It was my conviction that as we move through life in its complicated stages, I would validate their thoughts and feelings and offer a safe place for them to share. And I would start by doing these three things, opening my heart as authentically as possible about my struggles and what God was teaching me. The increasing level of relational trust confirmed over time that my kids felt trusted and valued when I trusted them with my heart. The reality was that the more I shared with them about who I was and what I was struggling with, I noticed this reality that they would turn around and in turn see, see that, that they, they felt that they had something of value of dads and I had trusted them with it. They in turn would begin to open up and share more about their life experience and where they were. And after all, as parents, that's what I wanted. I want to know where your heart is when you're going through puberty and adolescence and all those things. I wasn't going to get it with perfect dad with a kid managing answers. I stopped fearing my kids not seeing me as perfect. I had to put a fabricated image to death. Perfect dad. Both Kathy and the kids confirmed they were more likely to own their stuff as I demonstrated owning my behavior and stopped self-protecting. The pattern of when Kathy has an issue and she brings it to me instead of listening Uh, my mind would immediately go to how to defend myself and protect myself, which is another way of saying how she is responsible for my behavior. Same with my kids. I would allow them, finally and foremost, to speak into my life. Proverbs 27, 17. My circle would be purposely extended and widened to my wife and kids. I granted them safety through a struggle I granted them safety, and though still a struggle to execute, it's the centerpiece of our home. And in our code, and in our home, the code is it's safe. If one of us in the family says, hey, I want to know what's going on, then our reminder is it's safe. What that means is, is that the person that's listening is going to shut up and not do anything but listen for the purpose of understanding Covey's first rule, if you know anything about him. It was just we took it, just saw a biblical principle there with it, and said, it's safe. You can share. I want to know your heart. And that goes for me. If Kathy ever looks at me and says, I need safety, that means you're not going to get advice. You're not going to get counsel. You're not going to get defense and self-protection. You're going to get someone who cares for your heart and wants to hear what you have to say. In February of 2009, I gave her an arrangement of 12 red roses and one white one, and the one white one meant I trust you. I'd spent 21 years of our marriage never trusting her to do what Genesis 2 called her to be, and that's complete me. God gave me a coach, a position coach, if you will, to live with me to say, here's how to step, here's where your hands go, here's, where, here's how this works, here's the leverage you want. My wife was a great, God gave her to me to say, Kirk, you're out of line. I wasn't listening. So I had to transfer trust to her. And from that day forward, that's the other code in our home that she has, is that she's completer. When she says it's safe, it means I'm listening. I'm transferring authority to you about my behavior and who I am. The impact has been immeasurable by God's grace of a functional and fulfilling marriage and kids that love me by their actions. Not perfect by any means. The life change in our home still grows. We continue to practice Sharpening one another. With the hope and presence of relational trust, the kids are far greater to share their struggles through adolescence and puberty and all the difficult transitions. We have a platform by which to discuss life. Though it's still a struggle, they know my heart is to listen, validate, and encourage. What child wouldn't want those qualities 
when they're struggling through the pain of rejection of awkward life stages. One of my daughters has dwarfism. And honestly, guys, knowing my past and who I am, as you see standing here in front of you, how do you relate to that? You don't try to fix or convince her that her emotional pain is not real. She's this high. She's unsymmetrically built. She's got 12 bones in her body that grew about half the distance that they would ever grow. Just take your arms and cut them in half and put a hand at the end, and that's, that's the length of her arms and legs. You can't fix that as a dad. You validate, you listen, and you encourage. God put me in a position to learn through her experience. But as she reveals it, and as she experiences it, what wife wouldn't want a man to respect her by giving her voice? Owns his mistakes, asks for forgiveness, seeks reconciliation and life change? A man who pursues becoming the husband and leader that God intended? What wife wouldn't want that? What wife wouldn't climb the back of a horse-drawn wagon and travel across the country if she had that? My guess is she would. In no way is our home without conflict relational strain, but they know their imperfect dad and husband desires to, fulfill, to find my identity in Christ and trust God to work through them to help me become the leader God intended. It's a process and it's continual. Real quickly, there's a museum built around the home of a famous English author which draws thousands of tourists every year. I'm told it's one of England's treasures and incredibly fascinating to tour. I listened to a gentleman who had gone over there to tell the story of how he went to visit. And being a great reader and lover of the man's work, he stood in a long line anticipating entry into the museum. When it was his turn to purchase a pass for entry, he engaged the lady selling the passes his attempts generated minimal response to engage her. He was all excited. He wanted to engage her. She wouldn't even hardly look up at him. When it was his turn for entry, he noticed the lady continued to be apathetic, figuring that she was so close to the man's works and everyday joy of others that he finally had to ask her about his book. Have you read it? The book that made the man offer, which she replied, I don't know, I've never read it. As it relates to those God puts in our lives to help us see ourselves, isn't it amazing how easy it is to stand so close to a treasure and never experience its value? Becoming who God wants me to be has come through others, exposing my idols, and then helping transfer identity from those idols to a complete and total dependence on the Lord And God put my kids and my wife in my home to help me do that. And by God's grace, there's victory and ground taken in both the slaying of those idols and the transfer from from those erected perfect dad to God. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. You've been a great audience. Appreciate it. All right, so I hope you have a little bit of a picture of what an authentic dad looks like in his house. None of us are perfect. None of us are going to get there overnight. But man, it is a worthy goal and it matters. It matters to the discipleship of your kids and the training of your kids' heart. Let's pray and then we'll head for small groups. Father, thank you for the words from Scripture. 
for the words from Kirk. He just put flesh on the bones today. And I ask that as we talk uh, with other men, other dads in our groups, Lord, that you would continue to reveal our idols, Father, and that we would begin to understand them, repent from them, and begin to make progress in dealing with them, that we might be your men leading your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.